Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? So as, as Ben said, we are, we're nearing the end of the uh, series, walking through the seven letters to the church in the book of Revelation. Um, today, we come to the church of Laodicea, uh, which is the last of the seven churches. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Next week, I'm going to summarize all seven churches, um, but I'm going to need your help for that. Um, and, and so uh, I'll share a little bit more about that uh, towards the end of, of this um, morning's message. Um, but in essence, I need you to email me. Um, my email address is simple. It's on the website. It's douglas at gfc.tv. Um, and next week, not only are we going to be talking about the, the summary of all seven letters, but more specifically, what's God saying to the church in Marietta? What's God saying to not just this congregation that's part of the church in Marietta, but to the church in Marietta? Because in the book of Revelation, the letters were all written to churches regionally. And so there is a regional church, and it consists, we're part of it, and there are other congregations that are also part of it. But I want you to begin to be asking the Lord, what do you sense? What do you sense when you ask him, what's he saying to the church in Marietta? And I want you to email me and tell me what some of those things are as you're praying, as you're in the Spirit, as John was in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos and saw into the heavenly realm and saw the things that were written down in the book of, of Revelation. Um, and I'm gonna see who says what, and maybe we'll get a sense of God really is saying something specifically to the church in Marietta, and if so, what should we do about it? Um, in addition, at the end of today's service, um, the way we're going to close today, I'll warn you now, is that, that we'll take communion, um, then we'll sing a closing song, then I'm going to leave the space open for those of you who want to dwell and spend time here hearing what God may be saying to you specifically. Um, the band will play on and, and we'll just dwell in the presence of God, and maybe it's in that time that God will speak to you specifically for yourself or maybe for the church in Marietta. Um, but I'll also close so everyone who doesn't want to um, dwell in that space uh, finds it easy to leave. That, that all okay? Uh, I was planning on doing the summary and Laodicea all in the same week, but that was madness, um, and, and, and we have all the slides for all of that. Um, Kayla, would it be possible to put up one of the maps? I want you to look at this map for a little bit. Um, Modern-day Turkey, and you can see grouped there all of the churches that the letters were written to. And just off the coast, you can see the island of Patmos where John was exiled. Um, and any of you ever been to Turkey? Few of us, okay. So this, this, is, this is real geography, it's real history, but, but I want you to notice that John receives a revelation. He sees something for churches that are how close to him? Pretty close. Look at that. John sees into the heavenly realm while on the Isle of Patmos for churches that are right there. Have you ever noticed that before? And so sometimes when we remember that these were letters written to churches, they were written to them. Absolutely, they were written to them. But in every one of the churches, there's this passage at the end that it says, let, let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. And so it seems as if even though John was writing to these very geographically, regionally located churches at the time, and there were other churches around at the time. The church in Corinth was there. Uh, that wasn't one of the churches that John wrote to, so there were other churches. So this wasn't the entirety of the church at the time that John wrote. It was a group of churches very close to where John was in the island of Patmos, exiled. Um, but as the Scripture says, let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we've been walking through all of these, that really is saying to us that if, if as we're talking about a specific church, you sense the Lord talking to you, either personally or about the church in Marietta, then it's important that we pay attention and listen to it. Um, and and I, before I go any further, I, I, I said I'd do this. I was gonna say thank you to Mr. Brian Raffey, uh, uh, who I was, uh, and my wife Anna, because I've had hundreds of questions about this text, and, and Brian listened to like two hours of them. Um, I was on the way back down from a wedding rehearsal, and Brian talked to me for most of that journey, and we were just back and forth. I'm like, so what do you think that means? What do you think that means, Brian? And can you look this up, because I'm driving. And so I said I'd say thank you, and Anna, the same thing, uh, just wearing around with questions about this. And so I hope that it's summarized, and that the 
fact I've been thinking about it for too long doesn't mean that it's going to take too long, and it's more succinct than it, than it would have been. But briefly, Laodicea. So in modern-day Turkey, thank you for that slide, Taylor, back to where we were um, previously, close to Colossae, so about 11 miles west of there. And if you were to look at the book of Colossians, verse 416, it says there, now when this epistle, so the letter to the Colossians is read among you, see it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And when that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there's a missing letter written to the book of, to the church in Laodicea that we don't have. Close enough to Colossians, so that when one was read, they were saying, well, you go get their letter and you read that to us, and you go get our letter and you read it to them. So that's giving you a sense of the, the proximity of it all. Close to Ephesus, and there was, of course, a book to the Ephesians. It was about 99 miles east of there. It said to have been a wealthy city, obviously, because the word rich is going to appear in that. We'll see that in the text. Said to have been a flourishing commercial city, said to have been significant to regional trade, said to have had a prominent arts community. You find evidence from that when you're looking through the ruins. You'll find old things that show you that they were significant theatrically. It made a significant contribution to the advancement of literature and science. And that includes, it seems, that there was a great medical school there. If you want to read more about that, you can read more about that. But what's most important to us today is not the historical Laodicea, but what Jesus said to them. And so can we read together, please, um, from Ephes um, Laodicea 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, and then it ends with those final words, whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, and so what I'm going to do this morning is just walk through that text, just break it apart a little bit and see what we hear the Spirit of God saying to us. Um, the first thing is this, in verse 14, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It's important to remember who's talking here. It's Jesus who is talking. This isn't John who's writing a letter. This is Jesus speaking to John with a letter for a specific church. Jesus who says he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as beginning and end, alpha and omega. And so anytime you're reading these hard or very seemingly hard words, you've got to remember who's saying it. Because if it's the man who's saying it, we live in a culture that, that it's very easy to speak words that are critical, but often those words aren't true about someone. We can pick things apart in other people's uh, words and, and their appearance and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the things that they stand for or the things they say are important and where they live and what they drive and, and all those sorts of other things, but those things aren't necessarily true. Sometimes they're just our opinions, but the contrast here is that when Jesus says it, it's real. When Jesus says something to you, even if it's the hardest thing in the whole world, it's true. And the important thing is when Jesus says the harder things, we should listen to them as easily as, 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 as much as we listen to the things that feel like a pat on the back, because we grow up in a world that often says, and we say it to our kids or said it to our kids, great job, great job, great job, great job. But very often, it's hard to pivot then to say, and by the way, this thing that you just did is terrible, and you should never do that again, and if you do it again, there are going to be consequences. It's easier to say, good job, great job. It's funny, I came to the US, um, I'd, in the UK, the UK is way more critical than the US is. It's, it's a stay in your place country. 
It's the, you're never going to be king or queen, so just remember that and stay in your place kind of country, right? It really is. And, and that's even reflected in academics because in academics, you can get a first-class degree. You've got to just get 70%. So there's this thing in England, and I don't know whether this is still the case. Someone else, someone could tell me, but it was when I, when I grew up and I studied and went to university that you can't get the last 30. You just can't. You write the best essay on the planet, and the professor has written into the code of exams that 70 or maybe 71 is it. That last 29% is unattainable for a student. And what it's saying to you is that's already saying there's a criticism that comes with the, the, the award even of the best grade. But I came over here, and I was astonished. I was at college. I was told I could get 100%. I'm like, what's that about? Not only you can get 100%, if you do the extra work, you can get 105 or six, or seven, and in fact, you can, you can mess up an exam because you did all the work beforehand, and you can still pass. You see how it's written into our culture that we commend, but we very rarely criticize, and so what the 100% saying is that you can be perfect in an essay. The English system is saying you can never be perfect in an essay, even if you do your best work. That's only for the professors. But you see why, therefore, in culture, when we hear a word of rebuke, it's not easy to hear it. So this first point, just hear it, it's Jesus who is talking. And it's Jesus who is talking to a historic church, so it may well be that none of this applies to any of us here. Rest in that. This may have nothing to do with us, but if you have ears to hear, and if on this day you hear the Lord talking to you about yourself or about the church then it is important for us to pay attention to it. Verses 15, 16, the next thing Jesus says to them is, I know your works. Wonderful thing about this is Jesus' word is always specific. It's never generic. It's never broad brush. It's never this thing applies to everybody and not you, not you, not you, not you. It's very specific. I know your works. I know your works intimately, deeply, precisely, perfectly, and then he goes and says this, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. And we're going to pause before we get to what it says next. Now, it's interesting. If you go through Scripture, you will never find the Greek word used here anywhere else in the whole of Scripture for lukewarm. So it appears once. So the way we're going to define it is we're going to define it because of the context. It says you are neither hot nor cold, so lukewarm means you're neither cold nor hot. You're somewhere in between of those things. It, between those things, it's, it's the simplest way to look at it. If you look through the New Testament, however, you'll find that the words cold and hot are used interchangeably, sometimes to indicate temperature, and at other times they're used to indicate zeal. And Jesus is saying, it seems, that it's better to be one or the other. I would that you were. I wish that you were cold or hot. Isn't that incredible? Now, if Jesus is speaking about zeal for him and zeal for things of the kingdom, is he really saying, I wish you were hot for me, but I'd actually prefer that you were cold for me than you were lukewarm? Do you think that's what this text says? Because if it's saying that, that's incredible. And he's saying, I'd rather you were apathetic, cold, set against me, hated me, refused to come anywhere near me, said that I'm not true, don't exist, or was on fire for me, but by no means the thing in the middle. Now, if you think that being set against God and apathetic to him and hostile to him and cold isn't something that God works with or can work with or can transform, then you don't know the story of Saul in the New Testament. Because Saul was Saul hot for the gospel. No, he wasn't. Was Saul on fire for Jesus? No, he wasn't. Was Saul cold towards the gospel? Was he set against the gospel? Was he actively persecuting the church? So I would call that cold. And Jesus seems to be saying, if you're cold, I can work with that. Because I can throw you off your horse. I can strike you blind. I can leave you sitting in a closet until somebody comes and anoints your eyes so you can see. I can tell you that you're going to suffer for the rest of your life for the sake of the gospel. I can do anything but just don't dwell in this middle place that's between that and on fire. Because the middle place, the next verse says, is so repulsive to him that imagine having the worst tasting thing in your mouth that you just, and you just got to throw it out. Jesus seems to be defining lukewarm as something that's so repulsive to him. 
But he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. This is deliberately visceral, clear, controversial language to make a point about the horror of this middle ground between being hot or cold. Jesus is saying this lukewarm thing is disgusting. This lukewarm thing is distasteful. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says that we are the salt of the world, but when salt loses its flavor, what's it fit for? Nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. And so maybe Jesus is making the same point that if you're lukewarm, you're good for nothing but to be spat out of my mouth. Cold's fine. I can work with that. And it takes a brave person to stand and say, God, I, I've read the scriptures and I think it's all true, but I ain't going to do it. I won't do it. I'm going to walk against it, but at least I'm going to be true. Because interestingly, Jesus says that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, honesty. It says this, I can't do that. God help me. Rather than it says this, yeah. What does hot look like? Let's think if we had a passion scale and there was zero on one end and 10 on the other end, and let's just talk a little bit amongst ourselves because we're all friends. What does it mean to be zero with regards to a specific sports team? Does it mean that you buy their memorabilia? Does it mean that you go to watch them? Does it mean you turn the TV on? And does it mean you know the name of all the players and the coaches and all that sort of stuff and you've been to the stadium? Zero doesn't mean that. Does 10 maybe mean that? So if you're 10 for a sports team, what does that mean? You've got the shirt? Yes? Been to the stadium? Know the players? When you go to see them, how loudly do you cheer? You're like... No. Let's use that passion scale in respect of a movie. You like a movie. If you're a 10 about a movie, what do you do? You won't shut up about it. Everybody knows that you love this movie. Everybody knows this is the greatest TV series in the world. Everybody knows this is the greatest artist that has ever lived. Everybody knows that your house is the best house in the whole world and how much you paid for it and how much of a bargain you got for it and how much time, oh, time. The amount of time you spend on something indicates how passionate you are about something. In the beginning of relationships, and it's meant to be this way the whole time, you'll spend every minute, waking minute, living minute, sleeping minute with the person that you love, but sometimes it just gets a little cold and it's like, it's been a while, um, I've got to go do something else. See, there's a passion scale. Cold means you hate it, you're set against it, you detest it, you'll have nothing to do with it. Ten means your energy, your time, your zeal, your money, your effort, your talking about it, your everything, is evidenced by the fact that you're hot. And so here's a question for you. What about Christianity yields lukewarmness? Anything? Is there anything in the scripture that makes a person read it and come away and say, I want to be lukewarm based on this? Does God creating the world in seven days, literally, figuratively, whatever it was, make you lukewarm. Does it? Does the story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice that he's willing to make make us live lukewarm? Does the story of God delivering Israel out of Egypt make us want to live lukewarm? Does the parting of the Red Sea make us want to live lukewarm? Does the story of all of the kings and prophets in the Old Testament make us want to live lukewarm? Does David slaying Goliath with a stone make you want to live lukewarm? Does David's mighty men make you want to live lukewarm? Do the prophets and the way they lived, even through to John the Baptist who lives in the middle of a wilderness eating locusts and honey and he's weird and he's calling out repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does he, when you read about him, make you want to live lukewarm? Does the rest of his life when he goes into Herod's palace and he's silly because he tells Herod that he shouldn't do this thing that Herod shouldn't do, and he's beheaded because of that. Does that make us want to live lukewarm? Do the martyrs through history make us want to live lukewarm? Do the lives of the apostles make us want to live warm, lukewarm? Does Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection make us want to live lukewarm? Does the fact that he's coming again make us want to live lukewarm? So why, where does lukewarm come from? It's astonishing, isn't it? Because in, in 
in chapter, in verse 17, Jesus says this, you say, and look at the contrast here. On one hand, the perception is, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And on the other hand is Jesus' reality. Look how confronting and challenging what he says is. You don't know the truth. You're not rich. You're not wealthy. You don't need nothing. But instead, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Is that astonishing? How can it be that different? How can the church in Laodicea perceive that they have everything they need? They're rich. They might have counted their bank account balances. They may have looked around themselves, seen how great their culture was, how great their arts world was. They might have looked at that great medical school. They might have said that we're significant to trade. They might have checked everything they had. And Jesus shows up and says, actually, this is nonsense. You're not rich. You're not wealthy. You don't have everything you need. The truth is you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I rejoiced when we were singing earlier, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, how many of us are? Every one of us. The truth is that we don't find grace until we acknowledge that. We don't find grace until we enter into, enter into the depth of our own wretchedness and the depth of our own miserableness and poverty and blindness and nakedness. The interesting thing is that I really believe this, that the, I think the core of why there is lukewarmness is because of those words there, because you say. Because you say. It's not because Jesus says, it's because you say. Think that through a little minute. A human construct of something we say, something we share with one another, something that becomes folklore and tradition and the wisdom of the age and the best arguments that we have and the best opinions that we have, the construct of all of those things somehow amount to a culture saying something that is holy false. Because you say. Because you say. Because you say. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this, and this is Kayla before the service was speaking about the, 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 wef, the, the, the fact that we, we don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the armor of God that we might in the end of the day be able to stand. And this passage says a similar thing. Though we walk in the flesh... We don't war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. Isn't that incredible? That it seems to be saying that strongholds are arguments. Strongholds are gatherings of words and opinions and sayings and traditions and things that we make that actually actively, what do the rest of it say? become high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So is it possible that as a culture, we talk so much, we have so many opinions, we have so many experts, we have so many people who don't talk about, do news, but they talk about news. We have so many professors, we have so many intellectuals, we have so many preachers who just talk and talk and talk and talk. And the construct that we build amounts to this word, we say something. And the thing that we construct justifies us in lukewarmness. Isn't that interesting? It's our human constructions that justifies in lukewarmness. Because otherwise, when you go back and you look at the scriptures, we did, and you look through it all, there's nothing there that makes us want to live lukewarm. So if we find ourselves living lukewarm, it's because we've somehow dumbed it down. We've said that this thing that says live radically doesn't mean that. We've said, and we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount next, but it means that when we read, it says, if you have two coats in your closet, give one to somebody else. We say, it can't mean that. It must mean go and shop and buy 17 more. It says, someone says to you, walk with me a mile, go with them an extra mile. It doesn't mean that. It means tell them to go stuff themselves. Right? Jesus says, if your eye sins, pluck it out. He didn't mean that. 
cut your hand off. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean this. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. You see, that's why I think Jesus says it's easier to be cold. He prefers us to be cold. To say, I see what it says. I see that it says that I should have, if I have two coats, I should give one away. I have 806, and I love every one of them. But you tell me I shouldn't. Help me. Rather than, he doesn't mean that. See, the, beginning, the moment we begin to say he doesn't mean it, the scripture doesn't mean it, the scripture must mean something different, we're beginning to turn it, and so God didn't mean that, God didn't say that, God didn't do that. Actually, we're creating a construct that makes it easy for us to justify living in a way that is not hot, not cold, somewhere in the middle, right? Hard to hear, but let me help you with it. There's a story, I think it was, um, I can't remember who wrote it, the emperor's new clothes. Who knows the story of the emperor's new clothes? This will help us. Two swindlers arrive in the city of an emperor. And the emperor apparently spent extravagantly on clothes. So it was said at the expense of state matters. So he has a lot of clothes. A lot of clothes. You can see that. Walking closets. Shoes all lined up. Hats. Emperor jackets. All that sort of stuff. So they pose as weavers, and they come in, and remember, they're swindlers, and so they're liars, they're deceivers, and they come in, and they want to supply him, and they say, Mr. Emperor, we will supply you with the most magnificent clothes, most magnificent clothes. And he says, really? Tell me about those clothes. And they say, oh, these clothes, very interesting. These clothes are actually invisible. Emperor says, invisible clothes? And they say, yeah, no one else has these anywhere else in the whole world. Ah. So you mean I'll be the only one with these invisible clothes? And he, they say, yes, Mr. Emperor. How much will you pay, 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 me, pay us for that? He says, as much as you want. So the emperor hires them, and they set up their looms, and they start to work. And what happens then is, so they're weaving these invisible clothes, and the officials of the state go into these weaving places, there's probably a term for them, but not weaving places, to go and check on progress. And every one of these officials sees that the looms are empty and thinks, hold on a second. Something's weird. But these terrible men told the emperor that the only people who won't see the invisible clothes are the idiots. If, you, if, you, if you're smart, if you're wise, if you're brilliant, you'll see the invisible clothes. If you're a fool, you won't see them. So when they go to we see these looms, and they see there's nothing on the loom, they think back, think human construct, human words, set of pat, something come together. They think, oh, hold on a sec. I can't see anything, but... Don't trust my eyes, because if I say I can't see anything, I'm a fool. Therefore, oh, I love what you're doing on that loom over there. It's great. And they go back and report to the emperor, how's it going? And they tell the emperor, this is great. The clothes are exceptional, your majesty. Can't wait to see you wearing them. You see how this is going to end, don't you? Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. And so he comes in, and they make him take his clothes off, and they dress him in these invisible clothes. And of course, he sets off on a procession through the whole city, walking proudly in his invisible clothes. And of course, all the townspeople think, well, he looks naked, but <laughs> if I say anything, I must be a fool. So, bravo, Emperor, love the clothes, love the clothes, greatest clothes I've ever seen. Until a child, it's always the children, blurts out, the Emperor's got the clothes on. <laughs> because kids are great like that. We had a guy who used to run through our neighborhood in the smallest shorts. <laughs> and we all thought this was weird. And I remember the school, the bus came through, it was by elementary kids. And I remember hearing coming through the windows, you do, there's a naked man running in the street. Because <laughs> that's what it looked like. Always takes a kid. Then the people realize this, that everyone's been fooled, but how are they fooled? The same way we all are. Because we won't acknowledge the truth. We prefer to look smart because the opinions of men that sound smart and sound intellectual and sound well thought out and sound well reasoned and maybe are all those things are more important to us than acknowledging the truth that the emperor has no clothes on. Let me tell you another story. This one's real. That was fictional. This is real. Um, back in 2000, and I think it was nine, I was working with a gentleman um, who was very close to um, Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson. 
And we would have these weird experiences when the phone would ring and he'd be like, hey, Stevie. I'd be like, who is this? <laughs> and he'd have a casual conversation with Stevie Wonder and he'd have casual conversations with Michael Jackson just before he died. And what I perceived when he finished talking was he was telling me that there was something going on that Jackson was about to do this, this is it tour. And he couldn't do it because it was too much, too many dates, and he shouldn't do it. Isn't that astonishing? Because if you, who remembers the cover off the wall, the album off the wall, and what Jackson looked like then? Who remembers what Jackson looked like towards the end of his life? How does that change possible? It's because you're surrounded by people just like those who surround the emperor who don't tell you the truth. It's more important to them that you pay them than that you tell them the truth. The king's greatest friend is the one that tells him the truth. Here's this true thing about you, and king, I'm sorry, you've got the clothes on, and whether you fire me, behead me or not, I'm going to tell you. It's difficult to do that, isn't it? It's easier just to, just to like, hey, Michael, yeah, you're great, man, you're great. Oh, great, yeah, biggest history, tour in history. Absolutely, I think you should do it. What was the truth of the situation about that poor man who died? He couldn't cope. He was being medicated by a doctor every night to sleep. So whatever he was doing in his life was so intense, so much, that he couldn't sleep. Now, what is propofol, all the doctors amongst us? It's an anesthetic, serious anesthetic. Should you use it to help someone to sleep? No, thank you. So if you're the doctor who's being paid to help this Michael Jackson man sleep, and to bring him to a place that he can sleep so he can rest because he's, he's not fixing whatever else was going on. All you're doing is compounding something horrible. And so we're meant to be truth speakers to one another. Truth, just like Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. But we're definitely not meant to be like the people who didn't tell the emperor. There's this problem here. And we're not meant to look at ourselves like that. When we read the scriptures, seriously, my brothers and sisters, there's no problem when we read it and we're like, God, that is hard. I cannot do that. Jesus' disciples were regularly confronted with him saying to them, everyone else is deserted. Will you desert too? And they came to the place that I think we should find ourselves with. Is that it's impossible. I can't do it, but I've got nothing else. So keep me in this place where this impossible walk that you've called me to walk in, that somehow you give me grace and strength to live in it and stand in it because I am wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked, and I have no shame admitting that before you. But the good thing is that with the rebuke, which is a hard rebuke, it's interesting, this church comes off the worst. Every other church, Jesus says, I know your works and you're, you're faithful and you're keeping my word and you're standing up for this and you're standing up for that, but I've got this one thing against you. Laodicea, the best thing he says is that you're lukewarm. It's the end of the letter. Interestingly, Philadelphia that Ben preached on last week was right before this. Only good things. It's like he's warming them up. <laughs> when they're, if, if you were reading through all of the books and you're the Laodicean church and you're reading about Philadelphia, like, hey, it's us next. He just said good things about them. And then he's just like, all this vomit language. <laughs> but here's the good news. Not only is the rebuke of God good, right? When Jesus says, fix this, it's good, isn't it? It's not good that he says, fix this, and we don't listen. It's not good that he doesn't say anything. But with the rebuke, Jesus also gives a solution. Verse 18, I counsel you. I counsel you. Look at the contrast. On one hand, there's this falsehood, there's this deception, there's this thing that they're living in which isn't real, which isn't true, because they say, and in contrast, Jesus says, I counsel you. This is the choice we make. My constructive words, my constructive thoughts, my opinions, these human arguments, or Jesus says. And Jesus says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Think about that. He uses the word buy. Literally means what it says. Why do we buy things? Why do we buy things? We want them. What else? To use them. Utility. What else? We need it, maybe. Security. Status. Isn't it interesting that if it's because we want, need, we really want it, we really need it, it's for status, 
all of those things. Jesus is saying there's something you need. Men may shop differently than ladies. I tend to go to stores to buy something that I know that shop has rather than to wander through a store to work at if that shop has anything that I want. <laughs> I might get in trouble for that. <laughs> You've got to lighten up this letter a little bit, haven't you? <laughs> Jesus says, buy something from me because why? Because you need it. There's no shame. He says, you don't have something and you need it. And guess what? I have it. Wouldn't it be terrible if Jesus says, you terrible people, you're not cold nor hot, you're lukewarm and, well, good luck with that. He never says that in any of the letters. Jesus never comes to us with that. He comes to this church and he says, buy from me something. Buy something. Why? Because you need it. Buy what? Gold refined in the fire. What is that? I don't know. I can tell you what I think it is. It's gold that is pure, that has no, no imperfection in it. Is it still molten in the fire? Imagine that if Jesus is saying, buy from me, and you look up and what he's saying is you're seeing this, this gold that's still in the smelting pot, and he says, buy that. What if he's saying that, buy this hot, really hot, will burn you gold from me that's still swishing around because it's hot, and he says, buy that. We would say what? No, thank you. Right? Why? What's it going to do to us? It's going to burn us. It's going to warm up our lukewarmness. It's going to sear us. It's going to transform us. If by some chance this is gold that was once past the smelting point and has cooled down and there's now this pristine ingot and it's just cool to touch, that's a lot easier, isn't it? And then I can say here, have this gold bar. And you say, thank you very much. But if someone gives you this gold bar that is perfect, what's the first thing you do? Okay, I just wish I had a stack of them. <laughs> I could go around. Board would have signed off on that hardening, right? A stack of gold bars, right? We're just going to go around and give you one. So here, gold bar. What are you going to do? First thing you're going to do. Everyone's going to run up and disappear out the church. Firstly, empty church. How do I empty a church in a minute? Give out gold bars during the service. Um, no, you're going to do what? What's the first thing you're going to do? Show it off. You're going to look at this thing. You're going to wonder about it. You're going to wonder about why they gave it to you. Why do you give it to me? Why do you give me that precious thing? Might it begin to change you? Might you think that someone's given you something that's so valuable that you might lead to act differently the minute after you got it than the minute before you got it? It's interesting, There's the, the closest thing I could find to this in the scripture is Isaiah 6. Maybe you're familiar with that. I, the prophet Isaiah um, sees into the heavenlies and he sees angels crying holy, 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 holy. And he has this overwhelming sense of his own imperfection. And the scripture says that the angel goes and takes, and it says, with tongs, a burning coal from the altar and comes and touches his lips with it. Now, does that coal cool down between coming from the altar and touching his lips? It doesn't. So I begin to believe that maybe if we're talking about similar heavenly language, that maybe that this, this, this gold refining the fire still has some temperature about it. But the beauty about what happens when the angel takes the, 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 the hot coal from the altar and touches his lips with it, right before that, Isaiah had been saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, i.e. I'm a wretch, I'm miserable, I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm naked. And I live in a nation of people who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the angel touches his lips with it, and it purifies him. And then the very next thing is, Isaiah says, who shall I, they say, who, the angel says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me. So somehow this gift of, of purity, this gift of, of, of this perfection of this gold refined in the fire, if it's anything like this coal from the altar, purifies us and sets us up to be able to serve God in the way that God wants us to serve him. But there's another thing it might be. The, the gold refining the fire could be speaking about Jesus himself. It could be telling us that what you need is you need some of me, Jesus says. For your wretchedness, you need me. For your poverty, you need me. You need my essence, Jesus says. You need my sinless perfection. You need my holiness. And the consequence of all of that is it beckons us into his experience. Because Paul, and, and, and 
and, and, and ultimately, it says buy from me. None of us go to a store and say, I want that thing there and just pick it up and walk out. What do we have to give them to get the thing that we want to buy? We have to give them something, right? We have to trade cash or barter, like for like, something equivalent to get it. And so not only is he saying buy something because you need it, but he's saying buy something, we have to trade. What do we have to trade? You know what I got to trade? Things of the world. I want to trade my wretchedness for more of Jesus. I want to trade my blindness for more of Jesus, my miserableness, my poverty, my nakedness, my lack for him. But interestingly, if you read Philippians 3, 3 to 15, and Jesus does, Steve, he does, he confronts the young ruler, and he ultimately says, give the whole world up and come follow me. Trade everything for me. Everything. And Paul, in Philippians 3, actually says that whatever things were gained to me, I'm going to consider them lost. And so he stacks up in this column all the best things. And so if you pause for a minute, if you stack up every good thing about you, your heritage and your family and your, your possessions and, and, and your job and your, your everything, in one column, Paul says, I will trade all of it for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus the resurre his resurrection power, but also, this is the funny thing, the fellowship of his sufferings. So Jesus is perfected through his suffering. And so might it be that gold refined in the fire is saying the same thing to us? So that's three things. It's something that changes our temperature. It's the essence and presence of Christ himself. But it's also entering into the experience of suffering that Christ entered into and finding our joy in those things. God said in the world, all sorts of things to cause us to have to submit and to suffer. And the scripture says, I think it's somewhere in 1 Peter 4, that he was suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So there's an experience of suffering that we have to walk through. I'll talk about, a little bit more about that last, next week. But a trade. And then the last things, buy white garments, clothes, because you need them. No shame. Just like the king. I need clothes because I'm naked. Buy eye ointment. I remember asking Anna, why would someone need eye ointment? She said, because they're sick. They got sick eyes. That's what this is saying. Sick with what? Misperception. Sick with seeing wrong. Sick, you can't fix it yourself. Look at the beauty of this. Jesus says, you see wrong. You perceive wrong. Because you perceive wrong. The scripture elsewhere says, if the eye is the lamp of the body, but if the light you have is really darkness, then how great the darkness is. And so if we're misseeing, if the arguments, opinions, thoughts, wisdom of the world is just leading us to a place that is actually deception, is actually darkness, is actually causing our lukewarmness, Jesus says you need to smear your eyes with, with ointment, and then suddenly it's like, oh, we all need those moments, don't we? We need a lot of O moments. And we only find them when we're brave enough to stand in front of Jesus and say, God, my life is a mess. And I know why it's a mess. And I'm lukewarm. And I shouldn't be lukewarm. I should be hot, but hot I cannot do. Don't you dare give me that molten gold stuff because I'm afraid of it. Because if you light me up with that stuff, I might start acting crazy. Remember the band DC Talk? Yeah, that song Jesus Freak? Yeah? Going back a little bit, it's talking about living in a way that is actually difficult because we're not easy to be around. It's easier for us to just sanitize our Christianity so when we're around non-Christians, we're like, oh, I don't mind having that Christian friend around. He's a really good guy. She's a really good woman. Not they talk about Jesus the whole time. Not they won't shut up about Jesus the whole time. Not I can't find them because they've gone off on, their mission, on mission summer or they're doing this and they're living so hot that I can't go anywhere near them because they are, they're these crazy Jesus freak people. No, let's just dumb it down and live plain, and live sanitized so we fit in the world. But there's nothing about Christianity that yields lukewarmness. But right at the end, it says this, verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And verses 20 to 21, there's a promise of fellowship. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Think about that. Um, 
I always used to see the Behold, I Stand at the Door and Knock passage in the context of the preaching of the gospel. My mother has this 3D hologram of Jesus standing at the door and knock. Haunted me for my whole youth. <laughs> Knocking for you, Douglas. He's like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> but it got me. <laughs> but the interesting thing here is who's Jesus talking to? He's not talking to the, un- the ungodly. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to his church. He's talking to his church. And, and this is almost like a joke. It's like we're having a conversation, and I'm still talking to you, and I look up, and I hear a knock, and I'm look, and you come back in the room. I hope you've never had that experience with somebody you're married to, or a good friend. But just imagine it for a moment. You're talking to one another. One of you goes out the room, and the other one keeps talking, and you're talking, and you're conversing. It happens when people's cell phones cut off, doesn't it? And you keep talking, and you don't know that they've gone. But imagine the reality of being in a room with someone, and you're talking to them. I'm talking to Emily, and Emily's talking back to me, and then, and then Emily just leaves, and I'm like, and so, Emily, I think this, I think this, I think this. Next thing I hear is a knock, and I look, and Emily walks in the door. What's happened in those last few minutes? I've been disillusioned, delusioned. I've missed something. I didn't even know she wasn't here. It's like this. It's another one of those, Jesus turns a mirror on the church and says, the truth is, I ain't even in the room. You call yourself a church and I'm not in the room. And you don't even know I've gone. And you're acting like I'm still there. And you're carrying on with church and being church and I'm not even in the building. But everything you do is just the same and then you hear the bang on the door and you realize that Jesus says, I want to come back inside. That's the grace of our God. He says, I want to come back in. Dine with you them with me. It's a promise of fellowship. And then this final promise, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame. overcame. See, Jesus is inviting that into that, us into that fellowship of overcoming as he overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Tough message, frankly. Tough to say. Don't know what it sounded like. <laughs> but tough, but this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus loves us. Grace is great. Grace is greater than our sin. Should we carry on sinning so grace may abound? No. Should we live lukewarm? No. How can we do it? Jesus says, you need to buy something from me that you never had. Jesus says, as we sang, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's light, alpha, omega, beginning, end, everything. And so as we approach communion today, and you can take elements from um, either side or the two stations at the back, and we have gluten-free communion. I want you just to ponder the Lord Jesus Christ Ponder what you're doing. What you're doing is you're remembering his body broken for us, his blood shed for us to make a way for us to have fellowship and to live lives that are, I think, the ideal thing is hot, not lukewarm. But if you can't do hot, then better to do cold and challenge God to say, God, break me change me. Who's bold enough to do that? Just you did it to poor God. This man who was persecuting you, persecuting the church, going all over the place to shut down churches, to kill Christians. Maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe in your eyes I'm worse. But I'm not going to fake this Christianity thing. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to pretend that I'm living a good life. Let me just tell you the truth because you see the truth. It's terrible. My life's terrible. It's a mess. Can you work with that? Because I want to be on fire for you. I want to burn for you. I want to be zealous for you. I want to transform the world. I want to be a transformer rather than someone whose temperature is just pointless. And so let me read these words. Um, in fact, maybe everybody just, everybody get who needs communion. Can we get communion, please? And then can we pause and take it all together? Maybe as the band just plays a little something.
you hold on to it for a moment. Let me just read these words so that we can eat and drink together. Luke 22. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer read of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, take this, divide it among yourselves. I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, giving thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Let us eat and drink the bread and the cup together in remembrance of him. benediction here um, to close the service Um, but then we're going to sing the last song after that point um, because I want there then to be an opportunity for you if you want to you want to leave then then you can leave right after the benediction but otherwise if you want to sit for a little bit and just sing through the last song then sit and sing through the last song if you want to sing through the last song and dwell a little bit hear what the Lord is saying to you or to his church and remember Douglas at gfc.tv email me I hope I'm inundated I hope we get a real clear sense of what the spirit of God is saying to his church um, otherwise next week's going to be short may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore